When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno, sending to you live Wednesday, October 26th, 2022. Before we get to the show, uh, a word from our CEO, Raul. Um, things are tough out there. So uh, to stay very true to our mission to help investors, we have reduced the price of a subscription to the essential tier uh, at Real Vision to $99 per year. And the subscription to the plus tier is just $400. These offers uh, will run until the end of October. So uh, make sure that you um, take good care of that uh, offer. Uh, but uh, let's get back to the show because we're going to ask the question today, when will the Fed get the message uh, and with me to discuss that exact question uh, i have darius dale the founder of 42 macro it's very good to see you again didi likewise it's great to be back man how are you i'm good uh, and let's bring up the first meme of the day because it basically relates to this question uh, all major central banks but the fed have pivoted changed my mind i saw someone tweeting this earlier today do you concur with this view with Darius? <laughs> <laughs> obviously not no this is uh nothing's changed since what we heard from uh powell on september 14th uh it's our estimation that based on some of the evolution of the data that we've re uh, received from then um it's very likely that they may actually be even more hawkish than investors are anticipating next wednesday so we can unpack some of that some of those dynamics if you look at the central bank uh, action today, we uh, got a message from the Canadian central bank hiking 50 basis points instead of the expected 75 basis points. And I think this um, meme that I just showed um, basically relates to that debate on global central banks outside of the US. Uh, if you look at Bank of Canada, if you look at Bank of England, if you look at the Reserve Bank of Australia, do you sense some kind of a global pivot coming outside of the US? Well, so let's just start by saying there's no global coordinated policy effort. We learned that much uh, from the, you know, sort of global kind of <laughs> the global consortium of, of big thinkers, if you will. That's kind of what I'll call them. The Davos people uh, got together in D.C. a few weeks ago uh, at the IMF gathering. And what we sort of got learned from that was that there was no real move towards globally coordinated policy action. And in fact, if you looked at uh, Gita Gopinath, who runs the IMF, um, she runs some very big division in the IMF. She basically said, hey, look, and this is something we found in our research at 42 Macro, which is most of the mo movements we're seeing in currency fluctuations are very much in line with, you know, changing structural fundamentals. I mean, if you look at the deviation in current account balances uh, relative to trend, the deviation in budget balances relative to trend, and most importantly, um, the change in real interest rate differentials, all those things are correlating very highly with um, fluctuations in, in the currency markets. And so, you know, it's very clear that, A, there's no globally coordinated policy. B, the Bank of Canada or the Reserve, or Reserve Bank of Australia, for that matter, a couple of days ago, these are not leading indicators for Fed policy. Leading indicators for Fed policy are twofold. 
one, what the data is doing, because the Fed is effectively guiding monetary policy by looking at the rearview mirror, which we know that we can debate whether or not that's smart, but we know that this is what they're doing. And then what the Fed says. And the Fed has been unequivocal, particularly in the uh, in the Jackson Hole commentary and in the September meeting about um, you know their, their policy objectives and in their desire to get inflation back to target. And we're nowhere near getting inflation back to target. You've been pretty vocal recently, Darius, that we still have a booming U.S. economy, at least on lagging indicators. So what do you make of that booming economy in the context of the Federal Reserve reaction function? Yeah, I mean, this has been the issue all summer, really. Um, you know, so we, we've transitioned from, you know, sort of the, you know, kind of if you think about the lows in around June uh, that we experienced in asset markets, those lows are primarily driven by the confluence of investors interpreting Fed monetary policy reaction and, and into a sort of extrapolating that into a near term recession dynamic. You know, it was aided and abetted by the second consecutive quarter of negative um, uh, of GDP that we got um, in the second quarter. Uh, we got that report in late July. But the reality is the lows we saw in September were more associated with not a decline in growth expectations. But more decline, just a more tightening of liquidity conditions, which we think are very appropriate given how robust the U.S. economy is. I'll just throw a few statistics at you. You know, if you look at the conference board's coincident economic indicators index um, for the month of September, we got the most recent data point last week. It accelerated to 3.3 percent on a three-month annualized basis. This is not a year-over-year -year statistic. This is over the last three months, the U.S. economy on a coincident indicator basis accelerated to 3.3 percent which is more than double the pre-COVID trend growth rate. Um, you know, I could throw a number of economic statistics at you. They're all coincident and lagging, obviously, but namely GDP. You know, Bloomberg has this monthly GDP series that amalgamates the data that are being released throughout the month um, in the same fashion that the BEA does so. And, you know, we're tracking at 9% annualized, three-month annualized on nominal and 3.9% three-month annualized on real. And both of those numbers are well north of their respective pre-COVID trends. So we know the economy's booming. And the issue with that as it relates to asset markets is because it's contributing to resilient and booming core inflation. Core inflation is not going to shock itself to the downside until we start to see some of these coincident and lagging indicators shock themselves to the downside. And we're just not at that point in the process. And yet, Darius, we still discuss week after week whether we are close to entering a recession. Um, I think yesterday the um, spread between the 10-year point and the three-month point on the yield curve inverted. Uh, one of the key recession indicators, uh, at least if you ask fixed income specialists. So what do you make of the signals being sent by the fixed income market right now? Yeah, so there's a lot of – this is to me is the biggest thing we should be discussing, which is – the signals that are being generated out of the fixed income market. And there's a couple signals. I'll, we'll start with the recession one, and then I will conclude this discussion and move on to the next. You know, pull up slide uh, 75, Brian, uh, where we show the three-month 10-year yield curve, um, you know, sort of as a, as a as sort of a leading indicator for recession uh, in the U.S. economy. And, and the reason we focus on the three-month 10-year yield curve is that, one, it has – it's the only yield curve with 100 percent uh, accuracy in terms of forecasting recession. But two, it's more sort of coincident. It's a, it's, a, it's a tighter lead to a recession than other yield curves, 5s, 30s, 10s, 2s, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I like to say at 42 Macro, we have this saying, which is the 10s, 2s yield curve tells you to start talking about recession, and the three-month, 10-year yield curve tells you to start positioning for a recession. 
Um, so this narrow inversion that we just um, experienced here, um, in our opinion, one needs to be, you know, sort of filled in. The integrand needs to be filled in. We need to see some persistence to the inversion or a real deepening of it. Um, but I think we're, you know, we're headed for that for that state. Um, and, it, and it really came on the hills, um, Andreas, if I can end in these two points. It really came on the hills of some some pretty important economic signals from a from a reporting standpoint that I don't think are, are were you know adequately discussed. Um, you know, if you think about FinTwit or other other channels and other avenues, um, Brian, if you throw up slide 40 and then we'll follow it up with 41 on slide 40, we show the spread between in the, in the top panel of that chart, the spread between the consumer confidence uh, expectations or sorry, present situation index uh, minus the expectations index. And as you see in the bottom panel of the chart, whenever you hit into a deeply negative spread and that deep negative spread starts to steepen, much like the yield curve starts to steepen into recession, you know it's all but a done deal that the U.S. economy is heading into recession. That's 100% back test since going back to uh, the late 1960s. Slide, uh, slide 41, Brian, if you throw that chart up, where we show the labor differential survey spread. Um, so the consumer confidence um, within that report, you get um, two separate uh, indices. One, uh, what's the consumer's uh, expectations for jobs being plentiful six months hence relative to their expectations or jobs being not so plentiful. And then you take the differential of that survey and it pretty much tracks the labor market to it like, like a glove or it's, a, it's actually quite a good leading indicator for dynamics in the labor market. And as we can see, you know, we've declined you know, roughly 15 points off of the eight off of the March cycle peak in this indicator. We've never seen a decline of 15 points in this indicator on a seventh month interval that did not coincide with recession. So we know where the economy is headed. The problem with asset markets is that from a coincident to lagging indicator perspective, which again, the Fed is hyper-focused on in terms of guiding monetary policy, it's still booming. And booming equals resilient core inflation. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. When we look at uh, these recession indicators, um, they basically tell us to expect a recession with a pretty high degree of certainty over the coming, say, two, three quarters there is. But when will the Fed get this message back to the question that we asked initially today? Great question, brother. Uh, I think the Fed is the one creating the message. And this is the problem with asset markets, particularly on weeks like this, you know, kind of in multi-week periods where we're kind of all throwing in the towel and succumbing to the FOMO. We are not, but, but you know, the kind of proverbial we, you know, we start to interpret stock market movements and movements in Ethereum or Bitcoin as indications of a change in Fed policy. We did this back in the summertime and it looks like we're doing it again here. And the reality is we are not, Fed policy is not changing. There's nothing has changed. You know, Mary Daly's speech, if you go back to last Friday, has really been misinterpreted as was Nick Terramos' article. The Fed has already guided to us that they're going to step down the pace of interest rate hikes, by the way, <laughs> interest rate hikes. So this does not necessarily represent a material uh, pivot. Um, you know, from our perspective, the number one thing we're really focused on is whether or not the Fed is going to sort of capitulate in this slowdown process, right? And we don't think they are. If you go back to their FOMC, the most recent dot plot we got out of the, the September Fed meeting, you know, if you look at their forecasts, 
and we've done a great deal of analysis on this in terms of you know relating you know different deltas back to to various intervals in the cycle various you know we, we've done we've sort of rinsed and you know kind of cleaned the uh, the unemployment statistics and the inflation statistics to understand like what the Fed's forecasts are actually implying about the state of the U.S. economy, particularly with respect to the condition of recession or not. And you look at their U3 uh, unemployment rate, headline unemployment rate forecast, they're forecasting a 90 basis point increase from now until the year end of 2023 from the September data. In the history of the U3 time series, which goes all the way back to 1948, there's never been a 90 basis point increase in that time series over a 15-month interval that did not coincide with the recession. You look at their core PCE forecasts. They're forecasting core PCE to decline, I want to say, 180 basis points between the August data and the end of 2023. There's never been a 180 basis point decline in core PCE in the history of that time series since 1959 that did not coincide with recession. So it's our view the Fed is implicitly targeting something that looks like a mild recession. So it's very unlikely they are going to be sort of quick to pivot as a function of the economy slowing down. They want the pain. He's, he's told us how many times. I wanted to play a uh, soundbite for you in relation to this debate on the rhetoric from um, Jay Powell. Uh, it's from our tremendous Make or Break series, um, and it's uh, from an interview with Lee Robinson uh, that aired yesterday, and he's got a pretty clear point on Powell's inflation remarks back in uh, August. So let's listen to it and get back uh, to you, Darius. Now, if you listen to what Powell said last in August, he said, I am going to be the new Volcker, basically. Yes. I am going to be the new Volcker. But if you actually listen to what he said, he said something very interesting. He said, we're not going to make the same mistake as Volcker. What did he mean by that? Volcker is remembered for killing inflation. At the second attempt, he increased rates, took his foot off the pedal, mm. inflation came back, and then he had to really ramp it up. They know if they do that in year four, the treasury's bust, BTPs are gone, whatever. So, so they've taken the view, we need to raise rates aggressively and then bring them down. So this pivot you're talking about, I don't think these guys are pivoting in February, March. I think they want to see inflation so far in the back, back of the car, right, in the rear, mm. rear mirror. They want to see six months of good data before they say, we're not finished. Because they get to March and they pause and they see some bad data, they're going to go again. He's telling you that. And I think the market is saying rates can't go. I agree rates can't stay high forever because all these governments go bust. But they can be very high for one or two years and then come down. And people are hoping that doesn't happen and you shouldn't invest on hope. The interview is already available today for our Essential Plus and Pro subscribers at the Real Vision platform. But back to you, Darius, and um, a comment to this uh, debate on, on whether the Fed will stay at higher interest rates for longer. What do you make of the outlook a bit further ahead on the Fed funds rate? Yeah, so this to me is the core question in asset markets because whenever you see you know stocks rise cryptocurrency rise risk assets rise they're dragging up structural inflation expectations alongside them and so you know we've seen you know the 10 year break even for example i want to say it bottomed at the end of last month at around two spot 10% or 2.10% you know we i think we got up back to 250 as recently as a couple of days ago or the, earlier this week um, you know so it's very unlikely that you know the Fed is going to be very sort of again to to these point and to my point that they're going to capitulate uh, very early on in this in this sort of assessment process. I um, mean the Fed is already guided 
um, based on the dot plot and based on Powell's own words, that it's very unlikely that we see policy, you know, kind of um, start. To, it's very unlikely that they start to ease policy in a material way or in any manner at all um, for an extended period of time once they achieve their terminal Fed funds rate target, which is currently somewhere between, you know, four spot seven five and five uh, on the um, on, on the on terms of the Fed funds rate, where we're looking at we're we're citing uh, overnight index swaps for that data. And the issue as it relates to asset markets, you know, take yourself, and I kind of tweeted as a jokingly, you know, investors are sort of, you know, got their trees pressed up against the nose. You know, they're they're so close to their nose pressed up against the trees. They're so close to the tree that they can't see the forest. And, I, you know, especially in a week like this or the last couple of weeks, which is take your take your take your darn nose away from the tree and see the forest. The Fed is effectively forecasting something that looks like a mild recession. And if you look at our data, you know, Brian, if you slow up the, the chart, slide 43 from our um, October macro scattering report, a recession has not been priced in. Most of the carnage we've seen year to date in financial markets has come through the change in policy expectations. We've seen it reverberate across fixed income, and we've seen that change in duration, the repricing of duration, both domestically and globally, get priced into equity market multiples. We've hardly seen a substantial decline in earnings expectations or a significant rise in earnings um, earnings yield. So again, on this chart on slide 43, it's a uh, somewhat complicated, but I'll, I'll explain it. Um, you know, just leave it up on the screen there, uh, Brian. What this chart is trying to ascertain is whether or not various metrics of financial stability and risk overall risk appetite within the financial markets have priced in a recession. Um, so with the top panel, we show the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index. The second panel, we show the S&P 500's next 12 months earnings yield. The third panel, we show U.S. dollar investment grade credit spreads. And then the bottom panel, we show the S&P 500 high beta, low beta ratio, high beta stocks as a ratio to low beta stocks. In each of those panels, we have three different dotted lines. The orange dotted line corresponds to where the indicator peaked or troughed in the 1990-91 recession. The green line corresponds to where the indicator peaked or troughed in the 2001 recession which all oh, by, by the way was the shallowest in US history, 1991, 90, uh, 1991 was the third shallowest in US history. And then you have the great uh, GFC, which is the red dotted line. And the blue dotted lines in each of those panels just uh, take the mean of each of those um, three dotted lines. And as you can see in financial conditions, investment grade credit spreads, S&P earnings yield, and of course the high beta low beta ratio, we're nowhere near having priced in a recession. So there will be a second leg down to this market where we see the ultimate capitulation, VIX curve backwardation, retail puke in the lows. It just hasn't happened yet. And every time, because it hasn't happened yet, you know, very antsy retail traders are very much sort of kind of still in by the dip mode because, again, they're conflating these moves in and around OPEX with the actual changes in policy, which, again, I think people are going to get um, really harmed on that. So if we look at history, Darius, uh, when is the bottom in, in equity markets? Is it around the start of the recession? Is it after the start of the recession? Or could it even be before the actual start of the recession? What's your take on that? No, no, it's typically well ahead of the, the, the start of the recession. Sorry, it's, the market tends to bottom well ahead of the bottom in growth in the, in, in the rate of change growth cycle. Um, you know, markets tend to bottom early in recessions. Get, that tends to be sort of the bottom of the rate of change of the growth cycle. Um, so that, you know, we, we found we've sequenced this a many, myriad of different ways. I won't give any um, of the real juicy conclusions because, again, we reserve that for our, for our members of 42 Macro, but um, specifically as it relates to growth, because I think that's the least of the factors that we need to be focused on in this particular market cycle. You tend to bottom well in front 
of, uh, of the bottom and growth. So you, sh you can't wait for the bottom and growth. You can't wait for an actual recession to get bearish. You get bearish along the way and you get bullish when you realize you're in one. Yeah. If we look at the good old 60-40 portfolio, so 60% stocks, 40% bonds uh, into a scenario that you just depicted um, with slowing growth, potentially a recession around the corner, but a very stop in Federal Reserve keeping interest, rate, uh, interest rates at higher for longer levels. Would you consider that old good old 60-40 portfolio at least temporarily dead for now? Uh, I mean, I think it's been dead. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it died it, again. It's been dead. You know, like it's 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 until inflation is sustainably below five percent. We've back tested this in our analysis with data going all the way back to uh, to 1880 from my uh, former professor at Yale, Miss Bob Schiller. You, inflation, when it's above in the threshold of three to five percent, that's when the correlation flips positive. When it's above five percent, the correlation is extremely positive. And so we got a long way to go on the inflation front for that correlation to flip back to inverse. Now, the one thing I will say, uh, it's sort of a caveat this, the month of October has been pretty interesting from a market pr uh, pricing standpoint. L you know, ignore the sort of returns. I think the S&P prior to today was up, you know, 8% month to date and the TLT was um, down 7% month to date. Again, these are prior to, to today. That divergence is, is new. We have not seen that divergence and this divergence is something that uh, we've been discussing with our members over the past few weeks now and if that divergence is persistent, it's telling us that the market regime is shifting from what we call inflation at 42 macro, that's pricing and growth down and inflation up, to transitioning to pricing and deflation, that's growth down, inflation down. And you typically get to the bottom in market cycles in deflation. In fact, every that's how every recession starts. It's in inflation and it ends in deflation from an economic perspective. And that's how every market and market cycle um, sort of prices that end just kind of on a leading basis relative to the actual economy. So um, again, I'm, it's very early in this in this you know kind of potential phase transition process. But to me, that's a really big kind of new thing to think about because then in a world where there is a reasonable alternative, it's no longer Tina. We're now dating our girlfriend Tara. If there is a reasonable alternative at four percent. Uh, you know, yields really across the curve, then I don't think investors are going to be too excited about, you know, kind of positioning for each of these bear market squeezes, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to lose waning participation along the way as we get further and further into this tightening cycle. And don't forget, we're still at three and a quarter <laughs> on the Fed funds rate. That thing's going at least five, four and a half. You know, this, this whole game is going to get a lot harder for everyone who thinks they can kind of, you know, position for every single bear market rally because, again, that history is shown otherwise. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We've had a pretty crazy day in uh, interest rate sensitive uh, technology stocks. Uh, for example, Alphabet and Meta are down uh, quite a bit today. Uh, I saw you tweeted recently, um, Darius, that if we get positive beats on earnings, it could actually be a part of contributing positively to core inflation. Um, so what do you make of the earnings season uh, until now and the spillovers to the inflation pressures? 
Yeah, so it's it's been it's been a good earning season in terms of like actually generating money. It's been a kind of lackluster earning season in the context of beats. And this is something we we called out a few weeks ago in our research, which is, you know, our dispersion model was tracking, you know, pod shop buy side flows into momentum as a style factor. And those, you know, on a relative basis in absolute. And those flows are effectively chasing the expectation that, you know, of good earnings, you know, for those particular companies represented in that basket, right? If you're in the momentum basket, it's highly likely you have, you know, accelerating um, um, earnings revisions, at least at the bare minimum on a relative basis to the broader market, probably most likely on an absolute basis. And so we saw that crowding into momentum. And as a function of the crowding into momentum, it's been kind of a weak earnings season, again, from a market response perspective. Um, I did this uh, analysis this morning prior to seeing um, today's uh, data, but you know, we saw, I think, uh, this morning, we had 170 S&P 500 companies um, report thus far, and they beat um, to an average, uh, at an average sort of um, surprise uh, a factor of a plus 1%, which is by far the lowest we've seen in years. And the response to that plus 1% has been an average uh, decline, one day for decline of minus 0.8%. So it hasn't been good. This has been the worst earnings season we've seen in a long time. Again, not on an absolute basis, but on a relative basis to market expectations that you know, really kind of crowded into the expectation that earnings would do much better in this particular earnings season. Because again, I think investors learned that, that lesson the hard way, ourselves included, um, in Q2 earnings season. We've got a bunch of great questions uh, from the audience coming in here. Uh, and I wanted to bring up a question uh, on the US dollar. Uh, we've seen intervention from the Chinese authorities uh, earlier today in the dollar versus the Chinese yuan. Um, and we've also seen intervention from, uh, for example, the Japanese authorities over the past couple of weeks in the Japanese yen against the US dollar. Uh, we got a question from Niles in relation to the potential Fed pivot next year um, and the spillover to the currently very strong US dollar. What do you make of the US dollar into this recessionary scenario with the Fed Reserve very stubborn uh, in its um, policy? Yeah, so th there's a couple things I'll say. Like we're at a very interesting crossroads from a currency market perspective, not because of the unilateral intervention we're seeing in PBOC, which, by the way, intervenes in the currency market every single day. <laughs> That's not news. <laughs> um, this, you know, the unilateral intervention out of uh, the Bank of Japan. Um, to me, the most interesting dynamic in the currency market, as it relates to the outlook for the U.S. dollar, is the sort of fiscal response in Europe, which I'm sure you'll you'll be able to speak to much better than I. You know, we're seeing, you know, sort of the the Kind of the the, the 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 supply, the incremental supply of sovereign debt, aided and aimed towards sort of you know kind of helping the the eurozone region in particular deal with its sort of energy crisis, you know, its structural energy crisis. It's actually being rewarded by the market, and this is something we we know it was we knew it was likely to happen. You know, once we start to see these headlines hit the tape, because again, our data shows that the euro has historically traded mostly on growth expectations. You know, that tends to be the the kind of the dominant driver of currencies. You know, there's all these different models you can use to sort of forecast and explain the variations in the currency market. Um, growth is, tends to be the biggest driver of the euro. Um, growth, if U.S. economy is really booming, it'll be a driver in the U.S. Or negative growth, really negative um, growth, will be a driver for the dollar. But you know, there's all these different sort of idiosyncrasies across different economies. With respect to the euro, the market is sort of really positioning for this. I've seen you tweet about this for several weeks now which is the sort of evisceration of the net short position in the euro when you look at the commitment to traders report. You know, I think you and I both track um, non-commercial net length as a percent of total open interest. That's now at plus 7%. The market is now net long euros, at least speculators are. And the one thing I would say is that 
that's on a very low level of total open interest on a trailing uh, one-year basis. We're now in the one percentile, one percentile of total open interest. So effectively, the whole market closed out their euro charts into this into these headlines that we're now starting to see. You know, uh, the governments respond with incremental stimulus now. I would have to say that we're probably not going to be able to sustain these levels in the euro for much longer unless the ECB comes out and says we're going to kind of support the currency from that perspective. If it looks like the ECB is going to take the easy way out and sort of let the fiscal authority kind of handle that, um, we don't believe this is a sustainable level. But I, I think it's I, I, I wouldn't pull your gun out of the holster yet. I think we need some more time to figure out the situation because it is new. Yeah, uh, we actually got news today from Germany that the German administration is ready to double the aid to the um, uh, natural gas giant Uniper, uh, 60 billion euros at worst. Um, and yet we got a pretty decent bound in the euro versus the US dollar back above parity, despite these um, headlines of, well, increased sovereign debt, as you put it. Uh, so let's get back to the uh, questions from the, um, from the audience. Uh, we also uh, get tons of que questions on the long end of the yield curve in a scenario like the current uh, Darius. Um, the question of whether the TLT, the long end uh, ETF in the US Treasury curve, uh, will continue its uh, yeah its landslide. Let us let us put it like that. Uh, what do you make of the far end of the yield curve given the current pricing and given the recessionary outlook? Yeah, no. So if we once the market starts to get comfortable with the idea that an actual recession is sort of imminent, and what I mean by imminent with inside of a risk manageable forecast horizon, which for most of the buy side is somewhere between one and three quarters, then that's when the market will start to sort of, you know, compress risk premium along into the curve. The long end of the curve is a hard sell when the bond market itself doesn't think we're heading to recession, or at least not officially confirming that with the actual yield curve that matters. I've seen people tweet about how the tens to have predicted this months ago, but I'm, I tweet back at them. It's like, well, if you knew that, then why didn't you buy bonds months ago? Oh, by the way, they're down 20% on, on, on the trailing three-month basis, right? You knew, you, you knew not to buy bonds because the bond market did not confirm the recession signal. We're now starting to get the bond market confirming the recession signal, although again, it's very nascent. You know, I think you see people losing their minds over the one basis point inversion in a three-month tenure. That's not how markets or the economy works, folks, but um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to monitor it because again, I think it's a big signal. If we start to see an inverse covariance develop between stocks and bonds, it's good night stocks. Who in the hell needs to be long the S&P at 3,900 or 4,000 with the bond market, you know, with potentially you know, a massive rally in duration ahead of us? That's just it's 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 a it's a big deal. Yeah, it potentially is. Um, so let me try and sum up the discussion today, uh, Darius. Um, I guess the overwhelming conclusion is that we have pretty decent evidence that a recession is likely within a time frame of, of say two to four quarters from now, um, given what we see from the yield curve and given what we see from various forward-looking indicators. But the Fed is not willing to admit to this message yet. Um, and frankly, they may even be pretty satisfied with an economic downturn because that's what's needed to bring inflation back just near the target that they have. So I guess when will the Fed get the message as we asked initially? Well, not yet, folks. That's the main conclusion of today. Uh, Darius, it was once again a great pleasure to host you. Uh, any final comments for the audience? 
Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, I'm excited for your meme, but before we sign off, uh, Brian, I did want to put up that Twitter poll because, you know, separate and apart from actually like what to do in financial markets at this particular interval, which obviously we're you know imminently focused on uh, here in this program and at 42 Macro and, and your research as well. I think we need to take a step back as investors from the tree generally. You know, I tweeted earlier today, you know, so many investors, I can just you, not sense it. I'm, I'm observing it in, in my timeline, sort of the kind of the FOMO and everyone kind of tripping over themselves to call the next wiggle in the financial markets. And, you know, you looking at it with the explosion of zero days to expiry options. You know, I think it's left over to 40, 50 percent of market volume, according to Brent Kachub over at Spot Camera, uh options market volume. You know, everyone's become extremely manic and extremely hyper uh, short term. And I think they're sort of losing their sight on the big picture. And I'm not talking about the big macro picture, according to Andrea or Darius Dell. I'm talking about the big picture of what your own investment objectives are. And so I tweeted a sort of, you know, kind of a diatribe associated or in line with that. And I said, look, write down, close Twitter for 15 minutes, write down what it is that your investment objectives are, because I had a hunch that most people really don't know. You know, I think they get whipped around between being long-term investors and then they get pulled into being short-term investors and they really don't have a guiding North Star of what's their, you know, what their actual investment objectives are. And so I did, did a poll following up on that initial tweet. And I asked, you know, Ryan, if you put this on the screen, did you determine and memorialize your investment objectives in accordance with the tweet above? And shockingly, or not shockingly, because I assume this would be the case, but nearly two-thirds of people said no. And probably more shockingly, the poll on the right, I said, what percent of other investors determine their uh, and memorialize their investment objectives? And it was actually less than the total number of respondents. So not only do people not know what the, they're thinking in terms of when they're putting capital to work, they think everybody else is as stupid as they are. This is a really dangerous setup. And I want people to, 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 to take some time and think about what I'm really trying to say here, which is you are responsible for your investment returns. You are responsible for your family's or your client's nest egg. It's not me. It's not Andreas. It's you. Write this stuff down and take it seriously. Thank you. Yeah, good point, Darius. And um, let's bring up the meme of the day because we need a bit of patience right now, Darius. And I mean, I've been stuck waiting for that Fed pivot quite a few times already this year. So this is me waiting for the Fed to pivot. And um, listening to you, Darius, I'll probably stay at that bench for another couple of quarters. <laughs> Let me put it like that. Um, it was a great pleasure hosting you, Darius. Thank you for joining us at the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Pleasure, man. Thanks always. And thanks for, again for the platform, for the audience. And uh, thanks for the great questions, man. You're a fantastic host. Thanks, Darius, and uh, thanks for watching out there. My uh, colleague Maggie Lake will be back tomorrow with uh, Western Nakamura. It will be a great show. See you tomorrow. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 